Tonight we're in Revelation chapter 18. And Revelation chapters 17 and 18 connect together as a very uh, coherent unit. And they both deal with an idea in the Bible. And the idea is the idea of Babylon. Now, of course, Babylon was a, a literal city. It was a literal empire. It, it has a very literal character in the Bible. But because Babylon was always the headquarters of the enemies of the Lord, and the birthplace of idolatry and false religion. Babylon became a byword for uh, worldliness, for idolatry, for corruption. And so when, in the book of Revelation, God speaking to the Apostle John through angelic messengers, when God wanted to paint the picture of the end times, one world religion, He did it with a woman who was a prostitute who was called Mystery Babylon. And we talked about that last week. Now, Babylon, as it's revealed to us in Revelation chapter 17, mostly has a religious or a spiritual character. We also saw last week how it's intertwined and interrelated with the Antichrist, the beast of Revelation chapter 13. And how at the end, This religious Babylon, this one world religion, will be in fact conquered and overthrown and and viciously dealt with by the Antichrist. But as we come to Revelation chapter 18, we see a different perspective on Babylon. There's debate among a lot of scholars as to whether or not the Babylon of Revelation 17 is the same as the Babylon of Revelation chapter 18. And I would say good scholars see the issue differently. Some point to two manifestations of Babylon, one religious and one commercial or material. Others see the two as one, both being judged at the same time. But I have to say that as we take a look at each chapter, I'm of the opinion that you're talking about two distinct flavors of the world. Revelation chapter 17 presents the world's religion or spirituality and how that one world religion is going to be judged. Actually, God will use the Antichrist and his government to judge it, tearing it to pieces. If you want to take a look here, it says Revelation chapter 17, verse 11 says, And the beast that was... And is not, and is also the eighth, and is of the seven, is going to perdition. And the ten horns, which you saw, are the ten kings who have received the kingdom as yet. But they receive authority for one hour as kings with the beast. These are of one mind, and they will give their power and authority to the beast. These will make war with the lamb, and the lamb will overcome them. For he is Lord of lords and king of kings, and those who are with him are called, chosen, and faithful. Then he said to me, The waters which you saw and where the harlot sits are peoples, multitudes, nations, and tongues, and the ten horns which you saw on the beast, these will hate the harlot, make her desolate and naked, eat her flesh, and burn her with fire. God will use this confederation of kings, this empire of the Antichrist, to destroy this one world religion. Now seemingly, that takes place in the middle of this final seven-year period that's commonly referred to as the Great Tribulation. But at the end of the Great Tribulation, God will deal with the rest of the world system. You know, the, the world, if you want to call it that way, it, it, with the, by those terms, it has a religious or spiritual character to it. 
but it also has a material character to it, a commercial character to it. And that's what's dealt with in Revelation chapter 18. That's usually a much, much broader uh, introduction than I give to a chapter, but let's dig right into it. Revelation chapter 18, beginning at verse 1. After these things, I saw another angel coming down from heaven, having great authority, and the earth was illuminated with his glory. And he cried mightily with a loud voice, saying, Babylon, the great, is fallen, is fallen, and has become a dwelling place of demons, a prison for every foul spirit, and a cage for every unclean and hated bird. For all the nations have drunk of the wine of the wrath of her fornication. The kings of the earth have committed fornication with her, and the merchants of the earth have become rich through the abundance of her luxury." This angel is so fresh from God's presence that he glows. He's illuminated with the glory and the light of God. And so he comes and he casts his light over the dark earth and he's come to make an announcement. Babylon the great is fallen. Now what's he talking about? You know, there is a ancient city of Babylon. And some people have thought that perhaps that's what he's referring to. The only problem with that is, as you take a look at it right now, The ancient city of Babylon is really nothing. Nothing. It's a ghost town out in the middle of the desert of Iraq. It's very interesting to see the news and to see that Saddam Hussein, that dictator who rules Iraq with an iron hand, he has had grandiose dreams of rebuilding Babylon and making it a a world center and a a, a world-renowned place. Now it's really nothing. But he says he has plans to do it. And even if he did determine to rebuild something there, it's hard to see that a city like that could gain the kind of prominence that's spoken of here in the book of Revelation chapter 18. I really believe that just as Revelation chapter 17 used mystery Babylon as a figure to talk about the one world religion, I think this city of Babylon used in Revelation chapter 18 speaks of the great commercial and material and business interest aspect of the world system. There's really something we need to remember here is that God, God's going to judge this world and a large part of what he's going to judge the world for is our materialism. It's very hard to talk about this. It's hard to talk about it, first of all, because it's so personally convicting. I, as many as you, I don't think I'm probably any less materialistic than most of you. But it's also hard to talk about it because I think we live in such a materialistic environment that we're insensitive to it. It's like asking the fish if he's wet. What do you mean wet? I mean, water. To ask us if we're materialistic when we live in the middle of an incredibly materialistic age, it's almost like asking, as I said, the fish if he's wet. It's so hard to deal with when we see what's important in this world and and what the most spectacular buildings and what the most interest and what the most effort and what the most uh, thing. It's always it's, it's after making money and buying things. Now, believe me. There's a place for making money and buying things. But we have uh, turned it, the idolatry of materialism, into an art form in the United States of America. And friends, it's going down. Take a look at it here. It says at the very end here, verse 3, For all the nations have drunk of the wine of the wrath of her fornication. The kings of the earth have committed fornication with her, and the merchants of the earth have become rich through the abundance of her luxury. 
Commercial Babylon says, give your life to me, to materialism, and I'll reward you. Well, it has a reward to give. It has an abundance of luxury. But it's a seductive reward. It's the kind of reward that a harlot gives. It doesn't last, and it's, it's cheap, and it's, it's non-enduring. Take a look at verse 4. This is the call to, to God's people in the midst of this. And I heard another voice from heaven saying, Come out of her, my people, lest you share in her sins, and lest you receive of her plagues. For her sins have reached to heaven, and God has remembered her iniquities. God says, come out of her. I find it very interesting. When it comes to religious Babylon, there was no call for the people of God to come out of religious Babylon. Do you know why? It's inconceivable that they'd ever be in it. But commercial Babylon? Oh, yeah. We know what it's like. You see, commercial Babylon, with its materialistic lure, is a constant threat to be guarded against. And that's why we hear the call, come out of her. Remember that life does not consist in the abundance of what a man possesses. Have your focus on the Lord God, on his righteousness. Why? Take a look at it here, verse 4. Come out of her, my people, lest you share in her sins, and lest you receive of her plagues. I can't help but think of, of the warnings that came to Lot when he was in the city of Sodom. You remember Lot. What an example of the worldly believer. What an example of a, of a man who, who, who did his thing with commercial Babylon. Well, it wasn't called Babylon, it was called Sodom. But you understand what the attraction uh, for Lot was towards the city of Sodom. It had nothing to do with sexual immorality. And we have no indication whatsoever that Lot participated in the sexual immorality of Lot. Excuse me, of Sodom. What he wanted to do was do business there. You know why Lot chose the area that Sodom and Gomorrah was in? Because he looked over and he said, Oh man, this is a beautiful, fertile, agricultural region. I can make some money there. And so we find Lot in the book of Genesis. And what does he do at first? In order to make money, he, he pitches his tent towards Sodom. Next thing we find of Lot, he's sitting in the city gates. He's on the city council. Well, well, he should be, right? He has to protect his own interests. And you see how Lot gives himself over to it. And Friends, do you understand what happened to Lot? Now, Lot was a saved man. It's hard to believe. It really is. But the Bible tells us that he was. In one of Peter's letters, he says that Lot was a preacher of righteousness. I almost grip my teeth when I read that. And I say, God, you know something I don't know from reading the book of Genesis. But you say it, Lord, so I'll believe it. But what's interesting about Lot is even though he was a righteous man in that respect... What was his punishment? He lost it all. He put all of his life, all his money, all of his family, everything in, into, into the riches that he could amass in Sodom. And when he escaped the city, he had nothing, nothing. The clothes on his back, that was it. Perhaps that was a wonderful lesson to him. How you can lose everything. You put your life into commercial Babylon, you share in her sins, you're going to share in her plagues. You see, when God's people are in a place they shouldn't be, either physically or, or spiritually, they're ripe 
for the plagues that God will bring upon that place. And so the, the call to depart from Babylon and the worldliness that it represents, it's a theme repeated frequently in the scriptures. Isaiah chapter 52 says, Depart, depart, go out from there, touch no unclean thing, go out from her, be clean, you who bear the vessels of the Lord. Jeremiah chapter 50 says, Flee from the midst of Babylon, and everyone save his life. Jeremiah chapter 51, My people go out of the midst of her, and let everyone deliver himself from the fierce anger of the Lord. Or how about 2 Corinthians chapter 6? My people, excuse me, do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers, for what fellowship has righteousness with lawlessness? See, my friends, that's the difficulty here. When when judgment's coming upon commercial Babylon, however much of our life we've put in there, that's going to be judged also. Look at God's assessment of commercial Babylon, verse 5. For her sins have reached to heaven. I keep thinking of of Babylon and and the Tower of Babel. They wanted to reach to heaven. And God says, well, you reached to heaven, all right. Your sins have reached to heaven. You wanted to build a tower, you want to get up that high. Well, look, you've stacked up your sins that high. And God has remembered, verse 5, God has remembered her iniquities. Do you want God to say that of you? No, thank you. I like what he says in Hebrews chapter 8. Their sins and their iniquities, God says, I will remember their sins no more. Isn't it beautiful? God promises to do that. I will remember their sins no more. It's almost too good to believe. Almost. We can believe it. It's in the Bible, but it's almost. You say, how can this be? No, God, how, how can you really say that you, well, God, do you remember what I did two months ago? Lord, it was so terrible. And you say, God, you know, it's just troubling. God says, what sin? You, you brought it before me. You confessed it. It's covered by the blood of my son. That's judged. That's put away. That's gone. You know, sometimes when a person has a, a criminal record, and they have difficulty getting a job in some field, or they they, they want to be able to vote, maybe they were a felon, or whatever the difficulty it was legally. They try to get their record expunged. They try to get it to where it's wiped clean from their record. Wouldn't that be be a great feeling if you were guilty of a crime, and even though you'd paid time on that, not only have you been released from the prison, but God says, I'm going to wipe it from your record. I'll remember their sins no more, but that's not the case with Babylon. That's what he says in verse 5. God has remembered her iniquities. Now look at verse 6. God's going to call upon those who who are going to render judgment to Babylon. He says, verse 6, Render to her just as she rendered to you, and repay her double according to her works. And the cup which she has mixed, mixed double for her. And the measure that she glorified herself and lived luxuriously, in the same measure give her torment and sorrow. For she says in her heart, I sit as a queen, and I am no widow, and will not see sorrow. Therefore her plagues will come in one day, death and mourning and famine, and she will be utterly burned with fire, for strong is the Lord God who judges her. Sobering words in verse 6, it begins with render to her just as she rendered to you. The ancient Greek word that's translated render there literally means to pay a debt or to give back what is due. God is going to give to commercial Babylon exactly what she deserves. And he says repay her double according to her works. Later on it says mix for her double. Do you know when double restitution was required in the Old Testament? When you stole something. 
That's something. You're a thief? Not only do you have to give back what you took, but double. Isn't this a commentary on commercial Babylon where God says, I I think there's been a whole lot of stealing going on here, commercial Babylon. This materialistic age, not only did you want a dollar, but you'd step on whoever you could to make it. You, you, You would lie, you'd cheat. God says, you're going to have to repay double. Look at the threefold sin here in this passage. Verse 7, first of all, she, she lived luxuriously in the measure that she glorified herself and lived luxuriously. Self-indulgence, you know it's a sin? Boy, that, I, I, almost, I almost want to take those words back, but it's true. Self-indulgence is a sin. Say, well, what, I can't have anything nice for myself? No, no, no. But there's a line somewhere, isn't there? Isn't the life lived just for comfort and luxury and self-indulgence? It's sin. What more can you say about it? It's sin. You say, well, where are you on the line? That's between you and God. But there's a line somewhere out there. Self-indulgence, that life, just live for self. It's a sin, but that's not the only sin. Second sin is pride. It says she glorified herself in verse 7. It says she sits as a queen. You can see the proud bearing of commercial Babylon. If there's anything that makes people full of pride, it's money. Money can make people more proud than anything. And the third sin in verse 3, it's all avoidance of suffering. You see what she says here at the end part of verse 7? She says, I am no widow and I will not see sorrow. Oh no, no pain, no suffering for me. And all these things are characteristic of worldliness and materialism. But God's judgment upon commercial Babylon simply says in verse 8, her plagues will come in one day. The destruction of commercial Babylon will come suddenly with completeness. Friends, I'm not talking about some future stock market crash. Sometimes I, I get amused because the world is never short of people who are predicting the complete economic collapse of the Western world in any day now. And I remember for a long time, books has been coming out, you know, with that topic. It's all going to, you know, it's, everything's going to crash. Everything's going to go. I don't, maybe it is. Maybe it isn't. I know the people who write and sell those books are doing pretty good because they sell pretty good. Friends, the bottom line is, I'm not talking about some, some stock market crash. I'm talking about God's judgment on this materialistic world. You know, it's not going to last forever. There's going to come a day when Jesus Christ returns to this earth, and he's going to rule and reign on this earth for a thousand years in righteousness and glory. And it's not going to be the same way it is right now. It simply is not going to be the same way. You know, no more are you going to have businessmen cheating their customers. Because the Son of God and those who administrate his kingdom are just not going to allow it. That's all. You're just not going to do it. You know, most people would not do wrong if they knew that there was going to be a swift, incredible punishment for them if they did wrong. But injustice isn't punished as well today. It just doesn't happen. Well, it is on the day when the Son of God rules us, sir. Commercial Babylon will be dead in all of its manifestations. And when you see the, the, the utter uh, depths that commercial Babylon will go, it's just, just to sell things. 
Friends, it's sobering, and you see the great sinfulness of it. Although some people like it a lot, and are going to be sorry when it falls. Look at it, verse 9. And the kings of the earth who committed fornication and lived luxurious with the, luxuriously with her will weep and lament for her. For when they see the smoke of her burning, standing at a distance for fear of her torment, saying, Alas, alas, that great city Babylon, that mighty city, for in one hour your judgment has come. So great is the heat and the smoke of the burning of God's judgment upon commercial Babylon that these kings have to stand at a distance. It's like, oh my, it's terrible what's happened. With a touch of sort of grim humor, these kings are standing at a distance. Right? The, the, the political kingdom will go on. Politics rules whether countries are rich or poor. Friends, they're, they're out of the game because any, any ruler would much rather rule over a rich country than a poor country. So they're sad, but they still hold their position. But the merchants, that's a different story. Look at it here in verse 11. And the merchants of the earth will weep and mourn over her, for no one buys the merchandise anymore. Merchandise of gold and silver, precious stones and pearls, fine linen and purple, silk and scarlet, every kind of citron wood, every kind of object of ivory, every kind of object of most precious wood, bronze, iron and marble, and cinnamon and incense, fragrant oil and frankincense, wine and oil, fine flour and wheat, cattle and sheep, horses and chariots, and bodies and souls of men. The fruit that your soul longed for has gone from you, and the things which are rich and splendid have gone from you, and you shall find them no more at all. The merchants of these things who became rich by her will stand at a distance for fear of her torment, weeping and wailing and saying, Alas, alas, that great city that was clothed in fine linen, purple and scarlet, and adorned with gold and precious stones and pearls, for in one hour such great riches came to nothing." And friends, isn't that the tragedy of commercial Babylon? Oh, oh, you can make your inventory list of all the wealth. Oh, you have an incident vivid how it was done there, you know? The list of all these fine things, these very expensive items in the ancient world. I mean, in our own days, you just talk about all the latest technological gadgets and finest things and beautiful tapestries and wonderful houses and properties and cars and all those things. And then they say, well, what's the end of it? In one hour, all those riches came to nothing. It's gone. Of course, it can happen in this world right now. There's the man with the great big portfolio. He's a very wealthy man, smart man, playing the stock market. Really, really ringing up the riches. Boy, isn't it great. And the next day, the bottom drops out. Doesn't even have to drop out of the whole market, just the places where he's holding his money. And now he's a pauper. See, because he was so smart, he had it all figured out that, that he borrowed on margin for all those stocks. And the calls come in, and so even what he had, his home, his car, all those things, it's gone, it's gone. In one hour. Now, if riches are that vulnerable to the world itself, how vulnerable are they to the judgment of God? Friends, it can all escape from our fingers so quickly. And that's why God tells us, put your heart, your life, your wealth into eternal things. I am absolutely staggered by what the Bible says we can do with our money. We can use our money to build up worldly materialistic things. We can. You can also use your money to build up eternal reward in heaven. 
Isn't that staggering? It's absolutely amazing. You can use something as, as simple as money to have spiritual reward in heaven. You know, I think of people who chipped in for outreach we did not too long ago, Simi Valley days. And so what did we do? We, we took money and we went out and we bought. We bought uh, hundreds of dollars, thousands of dollars. We spent uh, a few thousand dollars on cassette tapes and Bibles and Jesus videos. We had people out there working the booths and all that. And you know what? They got rid of everything, everything. I, I mean, the last afternoon of this Simi Valley days, there wasn't anything. There wasn't a paper clip to give away to somebody. It's just, it was beautiful. We just cleaned the whole thing out. You think of the person who, who gave $5, and their money would have bought a Jesus video, a, a Bible, and a few tapes, maybe a few tracks. Somebody takes those tracks, and they, they read them, and they pray. They read the, 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 the Bible that's given to them. They watch the Jesus video. They listen to the cassette tape. They come to saving faith in Jesus Christ. And God says, you, the one who gave $5, you did that. You did that. You say, well, no, Lord, I didn't do it. I just shelled out. I, I, I didn't even think about it. I just, you know, I did it out of obligation. I just thought, well, I'll do it. It'd be nice, wouldn't it? It's good for that. God says, but you helped. It's wonderful. And then who knows what else beyond that, because that one person who came to the Lord through, through that one contribution, then that person went out and, and, and they brought a hundred people to the Lord. And those hundred people brought 10,000 people to the Lord. God says, look at all that you did just with that. It's amazing. Or you could go out and buy a better electronic gadget. Well, I convict myself. I like the electronic gadgets just as much as anybody. But you've got to get a heavenly perspective on these things. And what really helps you to get a heavenly perspective is to realize that the material things of this world just aren't going to last, that they're going down. I I used this illustration last week, but I think it it really holds well. You go out on the porch tomorrow morning and you pick up the newspaper and you open it up and you see that it's the newspaper, but it's dated one month from today. And this is fantastic. You say, I I don't know how it happened. It's just like in the movies. I get a newspaper that's going to tell me everything that's going to happen one month from today. You say, well, I'm a smart guy. I'm going to open up the business section and see what the stocks are. You you hold money. and You've got thousands and thousands of dollars in one particular stock. You say, I'm going to see what my stock's going to be doing a month from now. And you open it up and you see, wow, one month from now, my stock isn't going to be worth anything. Nothing. Now, if you decide to hold on to that stock through that month, how dumb are you? You know that all its value is going to be swept away, but you hold on to the stock. Maybe you say, well, you know, maybe it won't turn out that way. Well, friends, when we put stock into the materialism of this world, we should know from Revelation chapter 17 and 18 that it's going down. It's just not going to last. So sell. Put the investment of your heart and of your life and of your investments into other things. Verse 17. The middle of the verse says, And every shipmaster, all who travel by ship, sailors, and as many as trade on the sea, stood at a distance and cried out when they saw the smoke of her burning, saying, What is like this great city? And they threw dust on their heads and cried out, weeping and wailing, 
and saying, Alas, alas, that great city in which all the ships on the sea became rich by her wealth, for in one hour she is made desolate. You see the theme again? How quickly it flees. Verse 20. The sea captains lamented, the kings lamented, the merchants lamented. But look at verse 20. Rejoice over her, O heavens, and you holy apostles and prophets, for God has avenged you on her. Sounds funny, doesn't it? Should God's people rejoice when judgment comes? Yes. Now, we don't rejoice in the destruction that judgment brings, but what we rejoice in is the righteous resolution that, judge, that judgment brings. It sets things right. Look at the finale here, verse 21. Then a mighty angel took up a stone like a great millstone and threw it into the sea, saying, Thus with violence the great city Babylon shall be thrown down and shall not be found anymore. What an image there, isn't it? He takes a millstone, that's a huge stone. Of course, a millstone was flat and used to grind wheat and, and grain. But just picture in your mind, if you want to, just a huge boulder. It's a huge stone, it is. And, and the angel takes it and throws it into the sea. And what does it do? Does it float? Of course not. It sinks down so quickly. Because that's how Babylon's going to be thrown down and not be found anymore. That's how quickly it's going to go down. Now, when you think of a millstone being cast into the sea, what do you think of? You think of that passage from Matthew chapter 18, where Jesus said, But whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him if a millstone were hung around his neck and he were drowned in the depth of the sea. That's one of the great sins of Babylon, is that it leads others into sin. You see, me, in my pursuit of materialism and money and all of that, I might lead you into sin. You say, well, how can that be done? I don't know. How about the pornography industry? Multi-billion dollar industry in our world today. Now, it's materialistic sin that leads people to produce it, but they lead other people into sin by how they sell it. You don't even have to go that far if it's a very dramatic example. You've been watching the newspaper and have you seen how, how movie heads of studios and production companies have had to go before Congress and testify and reveal that they take their violent and sexually graphic R-rated movies and deliberately market them to preteens and teens. The very people who are not supposed to watch those movies. And it's not an accidental kind of thing. It's their deliberate marketing strategy. They say, we want to get these young children, these kids 11, 12, 13, 14, we want to get them in the theater to watch this movie of graphic violence and graphic sex, and so we'll market it to them. It's terrible. That's leading others into sin. And you can't justify it just because it makes you money. Friends, it's a, it's a terrible thing to sin unto yourself. It's a terrible thing. 
It's enough to damn your soul. But it's even more terrible to lead others into sin. So if you're going to sin, just keep it to yourself. If you lead others into sin, it's a far, far greater measure of guilt. Friends, you see, verse 21 says, The city of Babylon shall be thrown down and shall not be found anymore. One day this world system will pass away just like a great stone falls to the bottom of the sea. You've got to think, well, will it hurt us? Well, only if you're tied to the stone. You know, if you're not tied to the stone, no problem. You say, well, I'm, I'm tied, but it's a long rope. <laughs> well, okay, so the stone will sink for a while before it drags you down. But friends, if you're tied to it, you're tied to it. And this is such a difficult, difficult thing to talk about. Because there's no way that I can lay down any kind of law about this in your life. I have no desire to, first of all. But secondly, it's just not of the Spirit of God. I mean, I can't say to you, well, if you have this much money in the bank, it's wise, prudent planning. But if you have that much money in the bank, oh, well, then that's sin. You know, and that's what we'll do as a church. Everybody has to submit their bank statement and, and well, well, you're in sin, brother. Oh, but praise God, you're doing well, sister. You know, it's ridiculous. And some people want to put trips like that on you. They want to say, well, you know, if you have this kind of car, that's sinful. But if you have that kind of car, well, then that's okay. Or they want to say, well, you know, you, you can have this kind of technology, but not that kind of technology. Well, listen, the bottom line is simply this. This is a matter of the heart before God. The biggest thing that I have to say to myself and to each one of us is remember that we're all instinctively self-justifying on these things. So we have to call out to God in sincerity and say, search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts. See if there be any wicked way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. Friends, I can't tell you what you should buy and what you shouldn't buy. And, you know, sometimes people bring decisions like that to me. I never know what to say. I, I, most of the time I tell them, you know, listen, it's between you and the Lord. What can I say? I'll pray with them about it. I'll pray God will give them guidance. But you can't be a law. I can't play Holy Spirit in your life. Not only can I not do it, I don't want to do it. Well, it's just responsibility. I just plain don't want and he's so much better at it than I am. So you've got to seek God. Say, Lord, what is it? Am I too attached to these material things? Am I, do I have a, a rope tied to, to commercial Babylon, and when it goes down, am I going to be dragged down with it? Lord, show me where to cut that rope. Verse 22. The sound of harpists, musicians, flutists, and trumpeters shall not be heard in you anymore, and no craftsman of any craft shall be found in you anymore, and the sound of a millstone shall not be heard in you anymore. Of course not. It's at the bottom of the sea. <laughs> Verse 23. And the light of a lamp shall not shine in you anymore, and the voice of the bridegroom and the bride shall not be heard in you anymore. For your merchants were the great men of the earth, for by your sorcery all the nations were deceived. It's repeated over and over again, shall not be heard, shall not be found anymore, shall not be heard in you anymore, shall not shine in you anymore. In graphic and poetic language, John describes how the industry and the commerce of Babylon is going to come to an end. 
It's interesting, too, at verse 23, it talks about, for by your sorcery all the nations were deceived. It uses that ancient Greek word pharmakia, which means to prepare drugs. The lure of commercial Babylon is like a drug addiction fed by deceptive advertising. It's frightening to me, folks, that there's a multi-billion dollar industry that wants to make me more materialistic, that wants to make me less satisfied with what I have, that wants me to think that if only I, I bought that product, I'd look just like the people in the commercial. <laughs> it's not going anywhere, is it, folks? It is like a sorcery that the commercial Babylon has over us. We have to plead to God, God, cut us loose from this. Verse 24. And in her was found the blood of prophets and saints and of all who were slain on the earth. See, the extent of this charge is an indication that this great city is symbolic of the world system at large. There is no one city on the earth that is responsible for the blood of the prophets and the saints and all who were slain on the earth. But I'll tell you what, every martyr that has ever died on this earth has died under the sword of the world system. Friends, God takes the persecution of his people as a personal offense. You attack his people, you attack him. God will avenge it. How rarely we realize that. A fellow sent me an email a couple weeks ago. and It really illustrated this in a vivid way. A guy was teaching a Bible class and was talking about you know, dealing with people and, and difficult people. And he said, well, uh, everybody bring in a, a picture, even if you just have to draw it, of somebody who's really hurt you, that you really don't like. You're really angry at them. You're, you, you, you've just had it with them. Of course, in a big class like that, a lot of people didn't do it. If you or I went to the class, we might chicken out on that assignment. But four or five people did. They brought in these pictures. Said, okay, well, this is what we're going to do. He took the the, the, the paper, and he put another piece of paper behind it, and he stuck it up on a big cork board, and he, and he pasted over top of it a big target, like it was a, a dartboard. He said, then let's go at it. And he gave the people who sent the pictures the, the darts. And boy, did they love doing that, right? Getting out the darts and throwing them at the pictures of the people that they didn't like. And there they go, wow, they throw the dart, and wow, you know, hit it right between the eyes, and the whole class cheers, and they're laughing, you know, oh, right in his eyeball, whoa, isn't that funny? (laughs) Oh, and they're having a great time with it. Then it came time for the teacher to apply his lesson. So he took down the the, the target kind of thing that was on the outside. Then he carefully peeled away the picture. After taking out the darts, and you see all the holes all over it, He peeled away the picture, and the paper that he had set behind each picture was a picture of Jesus. And you could see the holes in the face of Jesus everywhere that a dart had gone through and struck the person that they wanted to attack. He didn't have to say anything. It was crystal clear. You attack, you lash out, you you persecute God's people. God takes it personally. He loves his people. He wants us to love him too. He wants us to bring the beautiful balm of his healing love. Well, we're never going to expect that from the world, are we? Never. 
But praise God, it can be different. It can be different among God's people. Isn't it a beautiful thing? The love and the refuge that we can find among the people of God. We can put away those dartboards, put away the darts, and say, yes, yes, Lord. Free us, free us, God, from worldliness, both in its religious sense and its commercial sense. Now, let me end with one last verse. Chapter 19, verse 1. After these things, I heard a loud voice of a great multitude in heaven saying, Alleluia! Salvation and glory and honor and power to the Lord our God. That that gets you going a little bit, doesn't it? You're like, yeah. Well, we're going to have to look into that next week, aren't we? (laughs) Because let me tell you, from here on out, I'll first one to admit the last two chapters have been kind of a downer. You can't spend a week talking about religious Babylon and next week talking about commercial Babylon, which are destined for nothing but judgment. And what it is, it's a searching time for us to look within our own hearts, isn't it? Say, Lord, where are we at? But next week, we get, we get back to the glory and the power of Jesus Christ. Oh, yes, we saw his glory and his power tonight in his judgment. Next time, we see the gloves come off, and it's a beautiful thing when Jesus Christ comes and touches down on planet Earth. So uh, I'm excited about that. Father, we pray that... Um, You help us to keep a light touch on the things of this world. You know, Lord, we don't want to become hermits or monks that have no place in this world. Jesus, you told us that we should be in the world, but not of the world. Lord, as we've seen tonight, there's no way that we can do that if left to ourselves. It has to be the work of the Spirit of God within us. So we cry out to you tonight, Lord, work in our lives by your Spirit to sever the cords that tie us to worldliness and materialism so that we can live in this world without being worldly, so that we can deal with material things without being taken by materialism that our love for you would grow and grow. Thank you, Lord. We praise you and thank you tonight. In Jesus' name, amen.